um, <coughs> it's good to be with you <coughs> excuse me, this morning. Um, before we get into the message, I, I just wanted to share with you um, over the past uh, few days of, of last week, I was uh, at the, the Chinese church in Chinatown attending a colloquium. Uh, it was a gathering of English ministry pastors from all around the nation, uh, even, even from, you could say, around the world, uh, to gather and discuss uh, English ministry in a Chinese heritage church. Uh, there, there were 24 pastors uh, from all over the country who attended, several from California, several from Texas. Like I said, one came down from Canada, one even came uh, from Ireland. And gathering with all these pastors, I was just actually honored just to have a, a seat at the table because there were so many, I guess you could call, call them like distinguished uh, pastors there. Uh, some of these pastors, as, as we learned about them, they, they had books and articles published. A few of them, you could say, were like the pioneers of uh, forming a healthy English ministry in a Chinese church. Uh, some are English pastors, but are now uh, senior pastors of their church. Uh, the pastor, pastors who even uh, encouraged Pastor Jen to go into ministry over there. And so since this was the first time something like this was held, um, near the end of the colloquium, one of the organizing uh, pastors shared some of the criteria and who they chose to invite or who they did. And hearing the criteria, it was you know, quite a, a, a narrow selected li selective list. And I, I, I was hearing it and I was thinking I shouldn't have even been on it. Uh, so after the event was over, I went to that pastor and thanked him uh, for inviting me to attend. And I told him I was surprised that I even made the cut. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, it really wasn't you. It was the church you're at and the rich English ministry that it has. And I think that's, that's partly true, and I'm thankful for the, you know, the, the, the rich history of, of English uh, pastors that have been through here and, and the healthy English ministry that this church has maintained over the years. Um, but I, I share all this with you uh, because if you're a regular attender of this church, I want you to be aware that you know, there are very gifted, capable pastors who recognize the issues that an English ministry and a Chinese heritage church can have. And so they're starting to come together uh, to discuss the role and purpose of such a ministry. You know, what are the things that should attract someone to choose like an English ministry of a Chinese church over any other church they could go to? And, and as I shared, this is the first time they ever held something like this. So it's not like we have all the solutions yet. Uh, we're very in the very infantile stages of discussion. Um, but you know, like I said, I, I want you to know that something like this is going on and, and things like this are being talked about, and, and that's a good thing. Um, as we get into the text for this morning, uh, as you heard when the scripture was read, it's, it's quite a lengthy passage uh, that we're covering. As you may have noticed, uh, even the, I didn't have Terry read the whole text because I thought it was too long. And, and when I was assigned to preach on this text, I was wondering, why, why are we having me preach on such a long passage? Some of you who've been attending a church for a long time, uh, you know, probably have heard many messages on you know, shorter passages within this text. But there's a reason that Mark has all these stories placed together where they are, and that's what I hope to show you today. As you might guess, you know, we're not going to be able to go very deep into each of these individual uh, stories, uh, but we'll take a broad swath to just you know, kind of look at them broadly and, and see how they're all related. Our passage contains five separate narratives 
which if you, your Bibles have, you know, kind of titles or headers in them, you can see how all the, you know, how it's divided and where the five narratives begin or end, begin and end. Um, and if you were here two weeks ago, when Chris preached, we saw, you know, that this is Jesus starting his ministry. And because of his teaching, because of the miracles that he was performing, his popularity was growing. At the end of chapter one, the last, the last sentence in the New International Version says, yet the people still came to him, Jesus, from everywhere. And this trend continues in chapter two. In the first narrative, in verse two, it reads, people gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left in the house. And in the second narrative, in verse 12, it says, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach. So as Jesus grew in popularity, you know, crowds followed him, but other people started taking notice, and not always in a good way. Obviously, you know, Jesus is the one thing that all these five narratives have in common. But another thing that all these five narratives have in common is they all have what we could call an opposition party. And in most cases, most of the narratives, I think in three of the, out of the five narratives, it involved the Pharisees. The Pharisees and other religious leaders were hearing what Jesus was teaching, seeing what he was doing, and it was messing up their concept of how religion should be practiced and what religious leaders should do. And I was thinking of a sermon title for this message. One title I briefly considered was Jesus the Ultimate Troll, because you can see, you'll see in this chapter that he just does, you know, not, not intentionally, well, not intentionally and not specifically to do this, but he does all these things to push all these leaders' buttons and get, get them riled up. And this morning, as we go through the five narratives, I want us to see what the opponent's religion focused on and, and how it caused them to think and how Jesus' religion caused him to do things differently. So we didn't read the first narrative. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the story. Um, but for those who are not, it's, it's a healing of a paralyzed man. Jesus is teaching in a house, and as we saw, the house is just jam-packed. You know, it was wall-to-wall. People couldn't even get in the house. And these friends of this paralyzed man want to bring their friend to Jesus because they saw that Jesus could heal. And they thought maybe they, he could heal a friend. And so they were so desperate that what they did was they couldn't get into the house, so they carried their paralyzed friends up to the roof of the house, and they dug a hole in the roof. It was, you know, it was a roof not like today. It's just made out of, like, mud and thatch. And they made, made a hole in the roof, and they lowered him down in a mat. And in this narrative, Jesus sees an opportunity for salvation to describe the sacrilege. When the man lowered their friend down from the roof, what do you think they intended or desired Jesus to do? Though not explicitly stated, I mean, it wouldn't be difficult to conclude that they wanted him to heal his friend because he was paralyzed. And we know from other stories that Jesus, seeing the faith of these men, could have immediately healed him, right? But he didn't. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why would he do such a thing? 
Once again, it's not explicitly stated in the text. But we can infer that Jesus saw that the paralyzed man had more than just a faith that believed Jesus could heal him. He had a faith that Jesus could offer him forgiveness and salvation. Because from what we know from other parts of Scripture, Jesus doesn't forgive sins unless a person repents and believes. The friends had faith that Jesus could heal the paralytic man because verse 5 does state when Jesus saw their faith. But notice that after it says, they, you know, they, Jesus sees their faith, they notices their faith. He doesn't say, oh, all of your sins are forgiven. He just says, son, your sins are forgiven. So the friends had faith in Jesus' healing ability, but the paralytic, it seems, had something more. A faith that recognized his unworthiness before Jesus and a desire to receive forgiveness and redemption from him. And this sets the scribes off, because to their credit in verse 7, it's only God. God alone can forgive sins. So for a mere man to say that he could forgive sins would be blasphemy. You know, they couldn't put two and two together to maybe consider that this man was truly the Messiah. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, confronts them in verse 9. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? Right? Because he could just go around and say, I forgive sins. And everyone's, yeah, yeah, right. And he wouldn't be able to necessarily do anything to prove that. But if he could heal someone, that might cause them to reconsider. And this is what Jesus literally does. The scribes who are very familiar with the Old Testament recall that God states in Isaiah, I am he, I am he, the God who blots out your sins and remembers them no more. But they conveniently forget Exodus 15, where God also declares, I am the Lord who heals you. So if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and he has the authority, and he has the ability to heal, he is God, which he is claiming to be here. As further support in verse 10, if you notice, Jesus uses this title for himself, the Son of Man, which refers back to Daniel 7, where Daniel uses this term and describes the Son of Man who has all the authority and power to rule over all nations for eternity. So Jesus here is declaring that he is the promised one who has come to bring salvation. But the scribes couldn't see it and were offended by his blasphemy. In the second narrative, Mark further uh, shows the extent to whom God would bring this salvation to. For where the Pharisees see depravity, Jesus sees potential disciples. Here, as we saw, you know, as we heard Terry read, is the account of the calling of Levi, who was a tax collector. Understand, you don't know the background. Tax collectors were despised by Jewish people. Tax collectors were known to be corrupt, they were greedy, they were considered the worst of the worst. They couldn't testify in a court of law because the testimony was considered worth, worthless. If a tax, tax collector uh, came into a person's home and touched anything, that Jewish home was rendered unclean. They were even barred from entering the synagogues. 
So even though Levi, which by his name lets us know that he's of Jewish descent, you know, even though he was Jewish, the Jewish religious leaders would have nothing to do with him. So what does Jesus do as he begins his ministry and forms a close core of followers? He calls someone like Levi, who's seen as an outcast. Even more, he allows Levi, as it says you know, in this passage, to gather together his despised tax collector friends and goes over to his house and dines with them. Jesus does more than just preach to sinners. He befriends them. And for the Pharisees' religion, this is intolerable. How could one associate with such evil people? Jesus gives the answer in verse 17. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See here, Jesus is even trolling on the Pharisees' view of, of how they you know, think of people. He's like, you consider them sick and sinners? Well, good, because it's the sick or sinners who need a doctor, and I'm just the person to heal them. And it's unfortunate that you consider yourself so healthy and so righteous that you can't recognize your own spiritual need for a savior. Understand, too, that, you know, Jesus didn't just party with sinners, so to say, you know, so to speak. You know, the picture you shouldn't have is, you know, where Jesus goes over to these, to Levi's home and, you know, is just, you know, partying it up and having a debaucherous time with them. You know, he's not like doing shots or like dancing on the tables, things like that. Um, you know, to the Pharisees' point, Jesus, Levi may have been an evil, corrupt man, but when it says he followed Jesus, to fully follow in the original language requires repentance and obedience. When Levi left the tax collector's post and it says to follow Jesus, he could never return. Because once a tax collector abandoned his post, you were never able to come back. Just unlike some of Jesus' other disciples who many of you know were fishermen and, and Theoretically, they could go back to fishing if they no longer wanted to follow Jesus. But Levi was different. And Jesus' goal in dining with this crew is not to bring about, it's not to party it up with them, but to bring about healing and transformation. I like what one one commentator noted in verse 15 when he points out the repeated use of the word many. It says in verse 15, there were many tax collectors and sinners eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Notice how Mark uses this repeated usage of many to intertwine the word sinner and disciple. And this commentator wisely noted, as such, it's the sinner who becomes the disciple, and the disciple is but a called sinner. So for Jesus and his mission, everyone is equal before God. There are only sinners in need of discipleship. Jesus came to call his sick and sinners, and we all fall into that category. Moving on, in the next narrative, the issue revolves around fasting. For those who question Jesus in this account, their religion requires them following tradition, But for Jesus, it is a matter of transformation. 
In these verses, Jesus and his disciples are not doing anything unlawful, per se. No, they're just not doing what other people considered religious people would do, which is fast. Why don't they fast? In this text, Jesus gives a two-part answer. The first part, in verse 19 to 20, Jesus simply explains that, well, they don't fast because it's not the time for fasting. Since Jesus has come to earth and has ushered in the kingdom of God, it's not a time to be down and to feel sorrowful. It's a time for celebration, like at a wedding. You don't fast at a wedding party, you feast. So now that Jesus is with them, it's time for joy and celebration, not for fasting. As Jesus alludes to in verse 20, there will be a time when he is taken from them, that is when he is arrested, tried, and crucified. Then it will be time to fast, but not now. The second part of his answer is more nuanced, however, as he talks about patches and wine and wineskin. You don't sew an untrunk patch into a garment. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. What does he mean by all that? But Jesus' teaching is that he didn't come to reform the old religious system held by the Pharisees and other religious leaders of that day. It wouldn't work because you couldn't mix the two. They were incompatible. Jesus came to transform religion and usher in something new. The old religion of the Pharisees, following Jewish tradition and works of self-righteousness, cannot blend with the religion that Jesus offers, one of grace and forgiveness through the perfect work of Christ. And know, too, that one can't simply add Jesus to his or her religion because he's not meant to be added. He stands alone. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. In the last two narratives, we see a common theme as it relates to the Sabbath. Here, the religion of Jesus' opponents, as you saw, prioritized um, conformity, while Jesus prioritizes care. In the first of these uh, narratives, the disciples go about picking grain on the Sabbath, presumably because they were hungry. What's interesting is that, in general, there was no rule in the Old Testament against what they were doing. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it even states that if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their grain. So as long as they didn't use a sickle, they were okay. But, the, but for the Pharisees, they considered this an act of harvesting, and according to their rules, no harvesting was to be done on the Sabbath. In Jesus' first rebuttal to the Pharisees in verse 25 and 26, Jesus recalls the account of David and his men, who in 1 Samuel 21 ate the consecrated bread of presence, even though this violated the law. Scripture doesn't condemn David, though, for his actions because David wasn't you know, just any ordinary man. He was to become the king of Israel, the ancestor of the Messiah. So his personal authority legitimated his actions and overrode the law. 
So Jesus' point here is that if David and his men could do this, as David, seeing David as the future king of Israel, how much more would it be acceptable for Jesus, who is the Messiah, and his disciples to violate the law? And this relates to what Jesus states in verse 28, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, so he alone can dictate what can and cannot be done on that day. His other argument in verse 27 reminds us of the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus' point is that God created the Sabbath for the well-being of humans, not the other way around. God intended the Sabbath to be a gift for the people so that they wouldn't have to work seven days a week. So for the Pharisees to make it a burden by enacting all these laws of what a person could or could not do on that day totally misses the point. And it reveals their own ignorance of God's purpose for enacting the Sabbath. And this relates to the last narrative where we see Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And in this passage, you know, to me, this is where Jesus really trolls the Pharisees because Jesus initiated the action on his own. You know, verse 3 introduces the narrative that Jesus was just sitting in the synagogue uh, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. The Pharisees, they didn't even say anything. But in verse 2, it says they were watching him to look to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And knowing what Jesus was thinking, he brings the man to him and he heals them. But understand that, you know, he wasn't, you know, trying to troll the Pharisees in the sense like, oh, you don't want to, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath here. Let me get a broom and watch me sweep the floor in front of you. Or, you know, you don't want us to eat on the Pharisees. You know, like, where's the Big Mac? Let me eat this Big Mac in front of you to get you upset. That's not his intention for doing what he did. He actually did the, all this because he cared for the Pharisees and he wanted them to have a change of heart. Notice in verse 5, you know, it does state at the beginning, he did look around at them in anger, but it continues, he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, which is why he tried to get them to see in verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good, or to do evil, to save life or to kill. Jesus deliberately provokes them to try to get through to their hardness of heart and even in initiates a healing miracle without prompting, but to no avail. You know, a couple of weeks ago um, during our family devotion time, my son Spencer asked a really good question. He wondered why God couldn't give people an experience more like the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus, where if you're familiar with it, you know, Paul was walking on the road to Damascus and God blinded him and, and called him. And, and, and after that incident, you know, Paul placed his faith in Jesus. And his line of thinking was that, you know, if God could do this to more people, more people would believe in Jesus and follow him. And, and that was a, a great question and a good thought. But here our passage even shows that even if Jesus performed a miracle, the people wouldn't necessarily turn to him. In reality, Jesus didn't actually violate the Sabbath because all he did was speak a word and the man's hand was healed. He didn't like, have to perform any surgery, take out medicine, things like that. He just spoke, and that wasn't a violation of the Sabbath. Yet to the Pharisees, it was breaking the law. Even though, from the Old Testament, once again, they knew it was God and God alone who could heal. Their hearts were so hardened that they wouldn't believe. 
rather than acknowledging that Jesus was Lord, it says in verse 6 that they went out the plot how to kill him. What makes this more ironic is that Jesus just challenged them, right, with what is more lawful, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They know the answer. But while Jesus did good to save life, they were devising ways to kill him. So when you compare the religion of Jesus' opponents, which can actually resemble many religions nowadays, or the, ones from, the one from Jesus, which would you choose? One based on conforming to tra- traditions and laws, relying on good works to try to make you acceptable before God, or the one from Jesus, who came knowing that we could not do anything in our own to earn salvation, so he lived the perfect life that was needed and sacrificed himself so that through his death and resurrection we can receive salvation. He didn't just come to associate with those who seemed already good enough, but went to the least and the lost to offer care and salvation to them. I choose Jesus, and I know many of you have too. And praise God for the 11 youth and the, uh, the many from the Chinese ministry that are getting baptized this afternoon who also have chosen Jesus. But for those who have not accepted Jesus yet, what is holding you back? As we read in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you have not become a Christian yet, consider whether this is so and what or whom you are placing your hope in for salvation. For those who are already Christians, don't think that you just accepted Jesus, so that's it. You know, as I look at this passage, as I studied this passage in Mark 2 and part of Mark 3, I see the beauty of Jesus as compared to the other religious people of that day. Who he is, the extent of what he did to save someone like me. And I hope you can see the beauty of Jesus in this passage. And I hope that it will cause you to want to praise him and worship him for the work that he's done in your life. Praise him for who he is and want to live for him because you recognize the great salvation that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. I thank you for Jesus and just for the beauty that is displayed in this passage of him. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to transform religion, to make it new, so that by your grace and mercy, we can receive salvation. For any of my friends out here today who have not accepted you yet, Lord, may they consider you and recognize your call to them to come to know you and receive the salvation that you offer. That there's nothing we can do to earn salvation because we're not good enough, we're sinners. But Lord, you recognize that and you've made a way even when we could not. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.